I want us to take our Bibles tonight and open them to our study of the Gospel of John. And as we begin tonight, I want to begin by reading for us chapter 14, verse 1 to 15. And then we'll ask the Lord to bless our time. John says this, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you once again for our time tonight. We thank you for your word. This text before us tonight is a familiar one to many of us as we read through the scriptures in our Christian lives, we've probably read this passage often, if not more often than many. We think about it and we think about what you are saying there and we certainly want to fully understand what you're teaching us. So open our minds to that and help us live in light of it for your glory, we pray. Amen. We're continuing our study, as you well know, of Christ's final instructions, as I've entitled it, Christ's final instructions to a saved people. And I think the words that we just read are amongst probably some of the most comforting of all that Jesus spoke. I don't often come before you publicly and speak about difficulties in my own personal life, and I don't often speak about what I'm going through by way of difficulty, and I don't want to do that tonight either, but suffice it to say that by the providential hand of God, all of us have been challenged in various ways, maybe this month, maybe this week, maybe this very day, in personal ways. You yourself, your family... In my own life over the years, it has taken place 
I have been given by God the opportunity to experience His grace in a whole host of ways, including loss. And of course, like I said, I'm not alone in it. I'm not the first to ever go through any kind of testing in life. You're not the first to ever have gone through that, and we will not be the last. But I have to tell you that it often is a challenge for me personally as a Christian to remain strengthened when it seems like the world is crashing down around me. I don't know how you face it. I don't know what you're going through. But for me personally, it's it's often difficult. And I want us for a moment as we begin our time tonight to turn to another place in Scripture where we gain a glimpse into a world that comes crashing down and the response of the man, even though all of it is taking place. So turn back in the Old Testament to the book of Job. Very familiar to us. Not a stranger to what it says, but a reminder to all of us as to what took place in Job's life and how he responded. We understand there's a divine encounter in the glories of the spiritual realm between God and Satan, and God allows Satan to have his way. He allows Satan to wreak havoc upon the life of Job. And just by way of reminder to us as we think about this, just listen to what took place in the life of Job in just a matter of moments. Beginning in verse 13. Now on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabians attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness, struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died, and I alone have escaped to tell you. That was a bad day. I mean, one guy is sitting there sharing the bad news of an incident that's taken place in the life of this man, and while he's still talking, another one's waiting in line to say, i got some other things for you. That was a bad day. And by the way, It didn't end there, because as we know, even from this process, he was inflicted with great sores upon his body, so much so that he was in excruciating pain for weeks. Just reading through what 
took place in Job's life is enough to, I think, help any of us see that the things that take place in our life are very little in comparison. Gives us a different perspective. But that's not what intrigues me most. What intrigues me most about this whole issue with Job is Job's response to what had taken place. The Spirit of God records it for us here in chapter 1, verse 20 and 20 through 22. After Job had received all this news in that one moment, then Job arose, verse 20, tore his robe, it's a symbol of mourning, shaved his head, that's a symbol of mourning, and fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, Naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Those are very encouraging words to me personally, and yet they are intriguing. Because after all that had gone on with Job, after all the emotional pain that I'm sure he was reeling from in his own heart, after suffering the loss of not just his own family, but his wealth, all of his animals, all of his servants, Job falls to the ground and he worships God. Do you ever wonder what it is that causes a man who has faced so much to do that? You ever wondered about Job and his own character that would cause Job, that would force Job in the moment in time from verse 19 to verse 20 to arise, to take on the symbols of mourning, yes, and yet fall to the ground and worship God? Do you ever consider that Job must have known the solution to a troubled heart? Go back to the Gospel of John tonight. Because in our passage in John chapter 14, we find Jesus leading his disciples in this very thing. He is teaching them what Job must have come to know. He is teaching them the way to confident living in the face of crumbling circumstance. How to live confidently, how to worship, even though the circumstances and the world in which we live or the circumstance in which we are in is crumbling around us. Maybe that's a good title to put at the top of the page if you're taking notes. The way to confident living in the face of crumbling circumstances. In similar fashion, the disciples' world is crashing down around them. In just a few short hours, the world of the disciples that are following Jesus, the now eleven, since Judas has gone off the scene, They're going to unravel and become full of bewilderment, full of confusion. In fact, they're all going to flee Jesus Christ. Why? Because 
this one whom they're following, Jesus Christ himself, the one for whom they had relinquished everything to follow him, is now leaving. The one for whom they had said that they were willing to die for was about to be gone. If they, if they thought it was bad already, Judas left. That was bad enough. They were confused about that. They didn't fully understand all the why. We remember back in chapter 13, Judas is gone. If they thought that was bad, it's going to get worse. The circumstances are going to get a whole lot worse, a whole lot more crushing when Christ is going to be arrested, when Christ is going to be sentenced to death, and then the death sentence is actually carried out. one in whom they had believed was going to be the one was going to be gone. And the events that were running into the room like the messengers to Job are just adding pain upon pain to the hearts at every turn. And Jesus knew that they are confused. Jesus knew that they were struggling and probably more than anything, he knew they were filled with worry about what might happen to them. And I think that's very telling for each one of us. Because each one of us, I think, can relate to what they're going through. I know when I think about this passage, when I think about the circumstances of life, when I think about things that are going on, when I think about what God is allowing, I... I can resonate. I can resonate with their what must have been going on in their heart. Each of us have had to deal with events, circumstances that seem like to make sense to us. It just makes no sense why this is happening. Each of us have experienced the loss of someone we love. It may not have been through their their death. Maybe it's just simply because of a separation that has taken place through some circumstance and it's removed them from our life. It it doesn't matter what it is, but we, we can sense what they're feeling. But we can only imagine what it must have been like for these men to know that it was imminent for them. That they would be losing the physical fellowship of the perfect one. We know their hearts are broken. Jesus knows their hearts are broken. And they need to know what Job knew. They need to know what Job knew between verse 18 or verse 19 and 20 in Job chapter 1. How they could live confident lives in the midst of crumbling circumstances. So beginning in chapter 14 of John's Gospel, Jesus, knowing that their hearts are heavy, knowing that they're emotionally at the breaking point, He brings comfort to them by teaching them the basic and yet often forgotten simple truth. If there is one simple truth that Job knew, and one simple truth, that Jesus is teaching the disciples in John chapter 14, in just the first six verses of this text, 
That simple truth is this. The key to confident living in the face of crumbling circumstances is this. Steadfast faith. Steadfast faith. Seems so simple. Seems so simple. The reason Job responded the way Job responded through all that had gone on through that one moment of time is because Job exercised a steadfast faith. Job exercised a steadfast faith. The reason he wasn't discontent with what had taken place in his life, the reason that he wasn't worried The reason that Job was dismayed but showed really no confusion in it all in that moment was because of steadfast faith. That's what caused Job to bow down and worship. This is the message that each of us must preach to ourselves every day when life begins to crumble. Confident living in the face of crumbling circumstances happens only through steadfast faith. And I believe this is exactly what Jesus wants us and those who were with Him that night to learn. We must have steadfast faith. In other words, our trust in Jesus Christ must not waver at all. It cannot waver at all. And you say to yourself, okay, well, how is that accomplished? If in the midst of circumstances of life, which they come, and they come oftentimes and sometimes at breakneck speed like they were coming with Job, when the circumstances come upon us like that, there is that confusion, there is that tendency to worry, there is that tendency to have anxiousness through it all. How do I have that steadfast faith that you're talking about? How is that accomplished? Well, we need to see what the Lord tells us in verse 1. Look at verse 1 with me. Jesus says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Remember what Simon Peter had said at the end of chapter 13? Simon Peter said to the Lord, Where are you going? Jesus said, Where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you right now? I'll lay down my life for you. Jesus said, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. I'm sure when Jesus said those words and they were in the hearing of the ears of all the disciples, all their hearts went. So Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. He says to his disciples, first and foremost, listen, get your eyes off the temporal. Get your eyes off the circumstance. Get your eyes off the here and now in this circumstance. Jesus says, look, the only way for you to live confidently through the crumbling circumstance of this moment of what is to come is by steadfast faith. And that kind of faith in action begins by getting your eyes off the circumstance. Don't let your heart be troubled. Now, I know when we read those words in our English Bibles, it sounds more like a suggestion. 
Sounds like Jesus saying, listen, let me suggest some things to you that might help, kind of in a psychologized kind of way. Almost like he's saying, hey, listen, guys, I want to give you some good advice. You can take it or leave it if you want. It's up to you. Just don't don't let your hearts be troubled with this kind of thing. It really isn't that big of a deal after all. I mean, anyway, it will just consume you emotionally. Just don't do that. By the way, the word troubled here is that word we see in other places in John's Gospel, especially back in chapter 5 where the pools of Bethsaida were stirred up. That's the idea. They were troubled. They were mixed up. That's what he means here. Don't, Don't let your hearts be stirred up. So sometimes when we read it in our English translations, it comes across kind of in our modern idea of a good suggestion. But that's not what the original language meaning is. That's not the idea. I think the New International Version, which is not my favorite version, but I think it comes closest when it says this. Just like the New American Standard says, do not let your hearts be troubled. It's not a suggestion. This is a command. This is an imperative from God to us. You know what he's saying literally? Stop allowing your hearts to be stirred up by the circumstances around you. Now that takes a whole different spin. Stop allowing yourself to be consumed by the temporal things that are happening. Those are startling words. Because what he was commanding were big things in light of what was just about to take place. He already knew what was happening in their hearts. He knew they were worried about the situation. He knew they were worried about what was to come. He knew they were scared. He knew they were confused. In their minds, the Messiah had come to free them from the Romans. Jesus was there. In their minds, they're probably thinking back to what we learned in chapter 12, and the people are hailing Jesus with palm branches and saying, King of the Jews. Now he's talking about leaving. Not just that, he's talking about dying. They're worried. The circumstances of life are crashing in around them. They're worried, and Jesus commands them, stop letting your hearts be stirred up about that. You know, when we have trouble in life, we don't want someone telling us that. We don't want a good friend of ours, a close friend of ours coming to you, and and you tell them, you pour out your heart and what's taking place. You don't want to hear from them, hey, listen, I know your circumstance is bad. But just stop letting your heart be stirred up by that. We don't like to hear that. We don't like to hear that. Yet Jesus commands them to do that. That's a tall order. It's a tall order. We say that to people who say that to us. You have no idea what I'm facing. You have no understanding of what I'm going through. That's what we say. You're right. I don't. 
if you're the one sharing that with somebody else and they say that to you, all you can say is, you're right, I don't. But God does. God does. And He tells us just how we can follow that command to stop letting our hearts be troubled, how we can continue to live confident in the midst of that crumbling circumstance if we will exercise our Spirit-empowered, God-given faith in four areas. It's going to take that that faith, right? That exercise of faith in order to do that. Well, how do we do that? Well, we have to exercise that Spirit-empowered, God-given faith in these four areas. And I think Jesus lays them out right here. How do I fulfill your command to stop being stirred up in the midst of circumstances that seem to be falling in around me? Number one is this. I must trust in the deity of Christ. I must trust confidently in the deity of Jesus Christ. Notice what he says. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Listen, those who are confident through the circumstances of life are people who actively trust in the deity of Christ. Jesus Christ is God. In the original language, this phrase can be taken two ways. And I believe in the context, it is best to be taken not as if Jesus is commanding them to believe in God and Him. In other words, if they're two different things, they had already done that. I think it's better to see it as Christ saying to them, listen, You trust in God the Father and you don't see Him, then trust in me as well, even though you won't see me either. Say, He's saying, listen, you believe in God, you trust God, why are your hearts troubled? Don't stop letting your hearts be troubled. You believe in a God you cannot see. Believe in me also, even though you won't see me. see, that is what was worrying them. That's what was worrying them. Christ was talking about going away. What would become of them? What would their temporal circumstance be like if Jesus wasn't there? And he's saying, look, you don't see the Father and you trust. Well, you can trust me in that same way. Why? Because I'm God. Because I'm God. You see, He wants them to understand and He wants us to understand as He's speaking to the disciples that even though He is not here physically, He has not left us spiritually. We always have access to God. You see, I don't believe, as some have wrongly taught, that Jesus is talking about saving faith here. Some try to say in some commentaries that he's saying, listen, you need to have real saving faith. In other words, I don't believe he's telling them to believe so that they might be saved. I don't think he's telling them that. I think he's saying, look, keep on trusting me. Don't let your trust in me waver at all. Because you are saved. 
said that back in 13, right? Not all of you are clean. You're clean, but not all of you are clean, he says. They already had believed in Jesus. Now he's saying, listen, don't falter in that trust. Don't falter in that trust. Keep trusting me because you are saved. Even though you don't see me, trust me just as you trust God the Father who you don't see. All of us go through Job days. Maybe not as bad by way of the extremes, but we certainly go through them by way of the circumstance of life coming at us like that. We might even go through Job kind of weeks. We might even go through Job kind of months. But through it all, we have to trust in the deity of Christ. We have to trust that He's there with us through it all, even though we don't see Him. Even though we don't feel Him. He's available to us at every moment. This is what Job understood. This is why Job, after hearing all of that, gets up, bows to God, and worships. There's a second thing that we must remember. We must remember His promise. We must remember who Jesus Christ is. We must believes that He is God. And even though we don't see Him, He's still God. He's still there with us. But we also must have faith in the promise. Notice what He says in verse 2. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. I want to stop there because this has been and can be confusing if we're not careful. It's a wonderful promise for us to believe. A lot of people like to quote that verse and say a lot of things about that verse. And the last portion of this promise is the part that can be so confusing. Not so much the promise itself, in my Father's house are many dwelling places, but the last part, for I go to prepare a place for you. And what is Christ speaking about when He says dwelling places? What is He actually speaking about there? Some of your versions may say many rooms. Some of your texts may say many mansions. We know that He's speaking about heaven because He refers to it as my Father's house. So we know it's about heaven. It's the place in which God the Father dwells. And it's the the place to which Christ has returned and will return from when He comes again. In fact, that's Christ's favorite name for God, my Father. He refers to His home as my Father's house. In my Father's house. Although heaven is described in a lot of different terms in the New Testament, I think that this one ought to be our favorite. certainly is a descriptive term. It's the home of the perfect Father when He says, My Father's house. In other words, it's not the home of some abusive or self-serving Father like some homes on earth. 
if we are saved, it's not just the Father of Jesus. He is our Father as well. So it's our Father's house. It's a place of peace, a place of comfort, a place of real painlessness. A place where we're fully welcomed all the time. A place where we are accepted. I don't know about you, but I grew up in a home where the home was always a welcoming place. And to this day, I still like to go home, wherever that is, even though we moved often in my life, even in my own married life. I've been married 31 years. My wife and I have moved, I think, 15 times in 31 years. But wherever we were, it was home because I was welcome, I was accepted. I like to think of heaven like that. Yet, infinitely much more than anything I could imagine on earth. And I I, I think that's what Jesus is trying to describe here. Not a place where there will be a large home for us individually. Not a place where we'll have our own little mansion on the corner, as some people like to think about it. I think we get this idea that heaven is a place where we will all get a big house and Christ is up there right now as the divine contractor building our house. It's a nice thought, but that's not what Jesus is saying. I think he's more describing here what took place in a Jewish home typically when someone got married, when a son got married in a Jewish home. They didn't move away. What would happen was that the father would just add on to the existing house. He would just build another wing to that existing house so that it would accommodate the entire family. They were all around. It was an agrarian society. Everyone was needed in order to perpetuate the name. And I think that's the idea, at least, that Jesus is trying to get across to the troubled hearts in the disciples. He's saying, listen, there is no need to be troubled about what is taking place. The circumstances around you, there's no no reason to have your life in an uproar and be worried about all those things. I'm going to prepare a place in our Father's house. A secure place. A safe place. A comforting place. You're going to live with me. You're not going to live down the street in another place. We've studied through Revelation, but I want to turn there for a moment just to kind of get this in our mind before we close out our time tonight. Revelation 21. Revelation 21, John sees the new heaven and the new earth. The first heaven, the first earth passes away. No longer any sea. And he describes the city of heaven. Down in verse 15, he says, The one who spoke with me had a golden measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as as the width. And he measured the city with the rod 1,500 miles 
Its length and width and height are equal. Let me just stop right there. 1,500 miles. I was reading recently, someone did some calculations concerning this and the size of heaven. And here's what they said. 1,500 miles is equal to about 12,000 furlongs. And they said 12,000 furlongs squared is 2.25 million square miles. That's 1,000 or 12,000 furlongs squared. Okay? 12,000 furlongs squared, 2.25 million square miles. An area that size would cover almost half the continental United States. To give you a point of reference, this person said, London is 140 square miles. If the ground floor of heaven were populated at the same ratio as London, it could hold 100 billion people. 100 billion people in their unglorified bodies, they said. And still have room to spare. But heaven is cubed. Did you read that? Remember? Verse 16. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with a rod 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. So it seems that heaven is cubed. And that means, this person went on to say, that it has... 3.375 billion cubic miles. All of that just simply means that heaven is big enough for all that God saves. It's big. And yet, it's still intimate because God is the central focus. We are all together. We are all there in the house of God, in His heavenly home, in the Father's house, as Jesus said. And what are we doing in the glories of heaven, in the Father's house, all of us who are there, and all of those whom God has chosen to save? We are doing what Job does. We are worshiping God. We are worshiping the Father in unbroken praise. What a place it is. What a place it's going to be. And Jesus says, look, you can live confidently right now in the midst of crushing, crumbling circumstances. But in order to do that, you must stop focusing on the temporal. Stop focusing on the circumstances. And the way to do that is to trust in Christ's deity. You don't see Him, but He's there. You don't see God, but you trust Him. Trust Christ. He's God. And trust in His promise. He is preparing a place in our Father's house for us. Well, there's two more, and I'll just list them for us, and then we'll look at them next time. There's two more. 
I said there were four. Here's the other two. We must trust in His integrity. We must trust in His integrity. And we must trust in His directions. We must trust in His directions. So we must trust in His deity. We must trust in His promise. We must trust in His integrity. We must trust in His directions. So how do we live confidently in the face of crumbling circumstances? We exercise our minds. We follow His commands by stopping what is naturally human. Naturally, we like to worry. We like to be troubled. That's where we go. Jesus says, stop doing that and dwell on what is divine. Paul said it this way in Colossians chapter 3. Set your mind on things where? Above. Not on the earth. We have to dwell on who Christ is and what He's promised. When we do that, we'll begin to live as Job lived in the crushing circumstances of life. Let's pray together. Father, just a brief look, really, at Your Word tonight. Opportunity to be challenged in our own heart and what we're doing with the circumstances that You've allowed in our life. Father, forgive us for not responding as You would have us, for being troubled when we shouldn't be, for not trusting in You as God, even though we say we believe in the Father whom we do not see. Thank You for once again reminding us of your wonderful promise that you are preparing our place and that it's big enough enough for us all, that is welcoming for us all, that we will indeed be in the presence of the Father, that it isn't just your Father's house, it's our Father's house because we're united with you. Lord, help us to not be troubled because we trust you with steadfast faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.